First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Welcome back to Bible time. Um, we have been here in First Thessalonians, but um, we got hung up there on the doctrine of the church, and we just did a couple um, lessons on the church real quick, and we are moving on into the study of the book of Thessalonians today, and I hope this will be a blessing to you um, as we get started on um, chapter 1 in earnest today. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray again. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you again, please come and touch us. Please come and enlighten our understanding. Um, breathe on us, Holy Spirit of God. Give us the ability to see your word, Lord, not just as letters on the page, but as reality and truth, and help us to put our faith and trust in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you take your word and um, put the life into it, Father, that only you can do. And we ask you this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, we've already um, kind of looked at this in our introductory messages. These, the use of the word Paul without any other um, title added to it speaks of the equality of the believer. Here, Paul is saying um, to you, young lady, that he's no better than you. And to you, he's saying he's no better than you. He's just Paul. And to you, he's just Paul. He's saying, I'm not some kind of super Christian. In Christ, there are no super Christians. And we remember that Paul. Paul said in Romans 7, the good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. And Paul also said in, to the Corinthian church that he was the chiefest of sinners, but he obtained grace because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. And we know that Paul was not anything special in and of himself. He said that his education, um, his upbringing, all of the time that he spent in the word of God, even as a lost man, he said, I do count but dung that I may uh, win. Christ. He says that it's something that he left behind him, pressing on to something better. The things that are behind, forgetting the things that are behind and pressing on to the things which are before. He left behind his education. He left behind his upbringing. He left behind his heritage. He left behind his traditions. He left behind his churchianity. He left behind his religion and he went after Jesus Christ with both hands and all his heart and here to the church of the Thessalonians he does not hold himself up in some kind of high esteem and there's a reason for that now he had a reason to call himself the apostle whenever he called himself the apostle over and over and over again but here he calls himself Paul just plain Paul Paul and just plain old Silvanus and just plain old Timotheus and this is speaking of the equality of the believer that in Christ there is no super Christian the pastor is not better than the deacon the deacon is not better than the widow. The widow is not better than the Sunday school teacher. In Christ, we are one. Christ desired that we be one, that we would be one not only um, in Christ in the reality spiritually, that in Christ we are literally one, but also that we would be one in thought, one in motive, one in will, one in direction, that our mind and our heart would be one, and that we would operate as one. Well, you cannot be one, and you cannot operate as one if you're lording it over one another. If you are truly one in Christ, then you're one, and one can not be better than itself. One must be equal or one is not one. 
And that should be pretty basic math right there. Now, under the church of the Thessalonians, the lo- this is the local assembly of the believers. That's why we got stuck there on the doctrine of the church. We have the podcast upon this rock. I will build my church. You can look that one up. And we have the podcast, The Church. Um, and I wish I had done a better job presenting those doctrines. I know I left a lot of room um, for... Um, just of my humanity, and I didn't get that nearly as clean as I'd wanted it to be. And I ask your forgiveness on that. I hope it was still a blessing to you. I hope to be able to do better as we go forward in the future. Um, Under the church of the Thessalonians, this is the local assembly of believers who are people, individuals who have placed their faith in God through his word. And we talked about how you... You cannot separate faith from the word of God. It's impossible. If you do not have the word of God, you do not have faith. Someone who says, we do not have the word of God preserved for us today, they are expressing unbelief and a lack of faith because faith is trusting the veracity of the one speaking. Trusting, that means the implicit honesty of the one speaking. And if you can't pick up your Bible today... and say, this is the very word of God, then you cannot say that you truly have faith in God because your faith is not based on God's word and faith is based on God's word. Do you hear me? I know we go over this over and over and over again, but it's necessary and it's absolutely fundamental. If you do not have the word of God, you do not have faith in God. You cannot have faith in God without the word of God because faith by definition is implicit trust in what God said, i.e. his word. And if your faith is in a loose um, translation of what God said, if your faith is in a partially preserved copy of what God said that's full of errors, if your so-called faith is in what people say and what the, the Bible says, but you don't believe that you actually have the Bible yourself today, then you cannot even have faith. And that is why the battle has waged over the word of God, because without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God so without the word of God you cannot have biblical faith your faith will be some kind of worldly humanist false hope that is not faith at all not the well-founded well-grounded knowing that what God said he would do he would do but rather some kind of ephemeral fairy tale pixie dust kind of faith that it's a hope so kind of faith. Maybe I'll make it kind of faith. I think that's true kind of faith. I get a good feeling when I go to church kind of faith. I get blessed by God and I know he helped me get that job kind of faith, but not a faith that is a biblical faith, which is a resting of my soul and my eternity on the actual very verbatim word of God, plus nothing minus nothing. And that faith is which that which saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why is this nation no longer a Christian nation? Why have our people turned their backs on the almighty God, even though they carry on a form of religion, but deny the very word of God that denies what they're doing as religion? How can we do this thing? Because we in America have allowed the devil and the seminaries and the 
um, theologians and the Bible translators and the publishing companies to steal the word of God from us. And they have given us pawned off copies full of errors. They've given us edited copies. They've given us abridged copies. And then they've told us that they all basically say the same thing. And it has the word of God is a powerless limp thing today that has no ability to demand anything of anybody and no authority to settle any argument. It's a historical figure piece, something that you can take or leave. But as long as you go to church and do what they say, you have some hope that you will please God because your faith is no longer in the word of God. And therefore you have no faith in God. And therefore by and large across America, you are lost and in your sins today because your faith is not in God. Your faith is in religion. Your faith is in baptism. Your faith is in theologian. Your faith is in seminary. Your faith is in YouTube and the videos you watched about the Bible. And your faith is in TV and the sitcoms and what they say about Jesus. Your faith is in the televangelist who corrects the word of God and tells you you can't really understand it. But your faith is no longer in the word of God. These at Thessalonica had the word of God and these received the word as it says in chapter 2 for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us ye received it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God and the church at Thessalonica had received the word of God and when you receive the word of God Paul becomes just Paul do you hear me today Silvanus becomes just Silvanus. Timotheus becomes just Timotheus. People who have to have an apostle bossing them around are people who do not have faith in the word of God. You say, substantiate that. Go to Corinth. Read the the epistles to the Corinthians. He said, I have spoken unto you as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. He said, when the time came that I should be giving you meat, I'm giving you milk. He said, because you're carnal, you have envies and stripes and one says I'm of Paul and one says I'm of Apollos you've got your hierarchy your denominationalism you've got your seminaries you've got all this stuff that you have to have to validate you because you don't live and breathe and abide in the word of God and the word of God is not your sole authority and that's the basic gist of what he was saying there and you can study it out and see if what I'm saying is true or not So this local assembly of believers, this called out assembly, having placed their faith in the word that they heard of Paul, but not as if it was from Paul, but as it was in truth from God Almighty, had the authority and the power and the blessing and the position that comes with faith in God and were able to be called and addressed the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here they're addressed in a way with no... No, um, no kind of censure, no kind of rebuke from Paul. Instead, he's able to get into some real meat with this church. And the two epistles to Thessalonians are full of meat, not full of milk. And the reason they're full of meat is because these people took the word of God as the final authority. God said it. I believe it. That ends it. Now, this church in the Thessalonians, having heard the word of God, commenced to obey that word of God and gathered in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And that is what a church is in truth. Any other group 
is either a church in condemnation, a church in judgment, or a church that has had the candlestick removed and is no longer a church, or it may be a group that has gathered with the name but not the power of Jesus Christ and has formed bylaws and has a membership and roles in a cemetery and a sign and VBS curriculum and a schedule and a bank account, and maybe they're incorporated, maybe they're not incorporated, but they're not a church. Here's the church of the Thessalonians gathered in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus. And he says here, he speaks of their position, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This church of the Thessalonians, which is, present tense, in God the Father. Now that word in, I'm not very good at English, and I'm really not good at taking apart the parts of speech, but I do know this, that word in is a preposition, and that means it's a positional word. It tells you where something is. The word in could mean you are in the house. That means you're not outside the house. That means you're in the house. That means that you have all the benefits of the house, that you have the protection of the house, that you have the shelter of the house, you have the security of the house if you're in the house. And Paul said that to the church, he's talking to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and Jesus Christ in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ and that means that this church has the protection of God the Father the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ that means that this church has the security of God the Father and the security of the Lord Jesus Christ this means that the church of the Thessalonians has the privileges of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ now when I got up this morning my appendix got up with me I didn't have to tell it to get up. I didn't have to ask it to get up. It didn't sign a form or an application or send me a letter and ask if it could go along with me. I took it with me to the bathroom and I took it with me back to the bedroom. I took it with me when I opened my Bible. I took it with me when I closed my Bible. My kidneys came along too. They didn't ask permission and I didn't ask them. My stomach and my intestines, my heart, my liver, my lungs, they they are in me and being in me, they travel with me. Where I go, they go. What I do, they do. What I eat, they partake of. What I abstain from, they abstain from because they are in me. And here Paul says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that the church of the Thessalonians was in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is speaking of the position of the church of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You say, why is that exciting to you? If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what can excite you. He's saying that they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand today that if you are in Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that can touch you that he doesn't let touch you? Because if something tries to touch you and you're in him, it has to touch him before it can touch you. Do you get that today? If something is going to take rule and bear rule over you, if a government, if an institution, if a people, if a devil is going to try to get to you, if you are in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that devil has to touch God. That government has to touch God. That organization has to touch God in order to get to you. And that ought to be exciting today. The church in Thessalonica was born in trouble. They lived in 
a place of persecution. They lived in a place of problems. They lived in a place where every man was against them and they were trying to be a light in the world. But because they were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were able to persevere and not only persevere, but prosper in the face of all difficulty. This is the position of the church. Now the position of the church as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ shows us, first of all, that the church has been born supernaturally. Supernaturally. You don't just get inside God. God's not a C-130 aircraft that you can buy a ticket for and walk up and crack the door open and get inside. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is eternally existing. God always was. God always will be. There never was a time when God wasn't. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-wise. God is all and in all, but he is not made up of the trees and the bushes that you see rather he made the trees and the bushes that you see and this church is said to be in Christ in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ which speaks of a supernatural spiritual birth not just of an individual but of a body of believers get that today Has your church been born of the Spirit of God? Ye must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. But for your church to be recognized as a church, it must be made up of born-again believers who are in Christ. And God has to be the one to put them together. And he does that from time to time. The church was born supernaturally at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were all with one accord and one heart in one place, praying and trying to do the right thing in Acts chapter 1. But in Acts chapter 2, the whole assembly of them was baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, and they went out proclaiming the word of God with power, and the church in its reality was born. That church still exists today still carrying on today, not under the flag of an organization, but under the power of a new life and evidenced by the fact that it is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this secondly, the position of the church shows us the unity of existence of the Godhead. And this is 1 John 5, 7 that I mentioned that we would turn to. There are three, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one follow along in your bible i dare you to you call it a bible follow along and see if your bible says anything that we're saying here today that verse i just read is cut out of most so-called bibles in the land of america today english speaking world they'll it'll say first john five um chapter five verse one verse two verse three verse four verse five verse six verse eight and skip verse seven check it out I dare you to. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now the following verse says, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. So most people will take that agree in one of verse 9 and apply it to the doctrine of the Trinity and say this means that God the Father agrees with God the Son, and God the Son agrees with God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit agrees 
he's with God the Father. And we have this little agreement thing. We've got a team. Um, a friend of mine just recently said, what if that's talking about a team? And I don't fault him for asking that question at all. What if that's just talking about a team that has to be one? Well, if that's what it was talking about, I would go along with it. But the problem is that ain't Bible. If you study out the Bible, Jesus said, I and my father are one. He said to, he said to um, one of the, I think it was Philip. He said, if thou hast seen me, thou hast seen the father. Jesus Christ claimed to be the father. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called, and it goes down through the list, the everlasting father. Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet, as God in the flesh, as one with God the father, equal with God the father, unique and individual, while at the same time being exactly one. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. That is exactly right. And that's where faith has to come in. Faith does not is not blind faith. Faith says the Bible says it, so I believe it because the Bible says it, and that's faith in God's word. So we see here the unity of the existence of the Godhead. You have the church in Thessalonica, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ... And in God the Father, the two must be one, or you could not be in them both. Jesus said that he was in the Father, and the Father was in him while he was on earth, and yet he prayed to the Father in heaven. Well, he was on earth. Jesus said that no man hath ascended up to heaven, save he that um, came down from heaven, which is in heaven. How can Jesus be in heaven and come down from heaven and used to be in heaven all at the same time? It doesn't make a lick of sense. You have to choose whether or not you're going to believe what he said and take it as fact or not. And I choose because I have found him to be true in every other area that whenever he says something I don't understand, I'm going to say, yes, sir, I believe you, God, even though I don't understand it. So here's the unity of the Godhead in the first verse of Thessalonians in that the church is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, go there quickly. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. And just a word here about these italics. If you're following along, you'll notice that the entire second half of that verse is italicized. Why did they do that? Anybody know? Raise your hand if you know. Do you see it? Is it italicized in your Bible? A good King James Bible will have many words italicized. A lot of times they will just do a plain print all the way across, and that is acceptable. The italics tell you, if you don't have it italicized in yours, you can see it in this one. Come over here and look right here. Just get up here and take a look. Right there. Do you see how it changes from a regular print to a slanted print? Do you see that? 
So whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, and then in italics, with a bracket, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Now, the italics here, I don't want to get hung up here, but I do want to explain to you what is happening here. The words in the Greek do not have all of those words to go word for word. What they have in the Greek, you find word for word here in the beginning in plain print. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. And these words in italics are not there in the Greek. Oh my. Now what? What do we do now? Is this an accurate translation or not? This is an accurate translation. When you go from the Greek to the English, there are parts of speech there are parts of the verse that are lost in a word-for-word translation that does not take into account meaning for meaning the exact meaning in the greek includes but he that acknowledgeth the son hath the father also but the words in the greek are only there for whosoever denieth the son the same hath not the father but to omit the words in the italics is to admit omit the exact, accurate, word for word and meaning for meaning translation into English. So therefore the translators put it in, in italics to carry the exact meaning of the exact words that were in the Greek. And I thank God for that. Some people will explain those italics and say that they were added for clarity. That is a very weak way to explain it. And it gives the inference that those were added by man when in reality those only communicate exactly what was said by God. Now the gist, do you follow that? Hey, the words in italics are the word of God. They are added there in English to communicate exactly what was said in the Greek plus nothing minus nothing. That's why they're there. Okay? That might be hard to grab, but you'll get it. Um, You just keep reading that Bible and believing it. So um, what does it say there in 1 John? He that denieth the Father and the Son, he is Antichrist. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. You don't get one without the other. If you are in Christ, you are in the Father. Think about that statement. Think about that. How can you get that upgraded? Now, if you go buy a seat on an airplane... Uh, let's say it's a 747 and you're going to fly over the ocean. Um, they have these little, little seats that are really tight and close together and jammed in there. And then up towards the front of the plane, they'll have some nicer, bigger seats that have a little more space. And that's the business class. And, and then up further towards the front of the plane, they'll have some nice, comfy, cushy seats that have space in between the seats and the seats can turn and the seats can tilt and you've actually got some room. And that's the, those are the really nice seats they call those the first class and in some really fancy airplanes they'll have a first class cabin where you have a room and you open the door and shut it and you don't have to hear or smell or see any other people except the ones in your little group and you get to sit inside your little room with your own personal media and entertainment and your own little air conditioning blowing in there that you can set just right and you get that exclusive seat up there in first class. And this is how man's religion likes to paint the church. In man's understanding and man's religion, 
in the doctrine of the Nicolaitans ruling over the laity, all you normal church people, you show up at church and you get the economy class. You're economy class Christians. And you belong in these tight, close little seats where you have to put up with each other. But up towards the front, you get the deacon seats. And the deacon seats, those ones are just a little bit bigger and a little bit nicer. And if you pay a little bit more, if you give <coughs> excuse me, a little more of your time, you can get a deacon seat in the business class. But now if you're a preacher now, now you're getting into first class seating. If you're a pastor or a preacher, an evangelist, and you're going to get the nice plush seat and everybody knows that you are a a preferred citizen in the kingdom of heaven and you have extra rights and privileges above the rights and privileges of normal nobody churchgoers. And if you're in a really big old organization that has been around a long time, they might have even organized it even even further, and they might have their own special first-class cabins that are reserved for the people who can then hold it and lord it and give authority over even pastors and evangelists and tell them what to say and what not to say and where to go and what to do. And they can do this because there's some kind of preferred saint that's way, way up there closer to God. And we might give them a name like a bishop or a cardinal or a pope, and they get their first-class cabin and who and depending on your organization they might be called the president they might be called the chairman they might be called any number of things but there they are but God says here that the church is in Christ in Christ how are you going to upgrade that seat Do you hear me today? How are you going to upgrade that seat? How do you get any better of a position than in Christ? Well, I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, but I'm a a super Christian. I am a bishop. How are you going to justify that position? How are you going to explain to me from the word of God where you have some kind of special privileges in Christ above another Christian that is in Christ? How, How are you going to explain that from the word of God? I dare you to do it. I beg you to do it. Get out your Bible, find it, and show it to me where you have some kind of privilege over the body of Christ. It's not there. So first here, the position of the church shows that the church has been supernaturally born of God. Secondly, it shows the unity of the existence of the Godhead and the church's position in that Godhead. Now, any attempt to circumvent, which just means to go around. um, Stand up here for me, please. You standing here, circumventing means to go around you. Now let's say that you are standing and you are guarding a gate into a ball game and I have to show you my ticket to get in. And so if I come to you and I show you my ticket and you say no, and then I say, oh, look at that bird over there and slip around you while you're looking the other way, I have just circumvented you. I've gone around you. I have subverted your place. I distracted you. I got past you. I didn't have to pay the fee. I didn't have to go through your authority. I bypassed your authority and got by the other side. And now imagine that I stand up about 10 feet behind that first man and I say to the next guy, you gave him your ticket, but you're going to have to pay me five bucks to get any further that would be an attempt to circumvent the ticket guy or if you stand on the curb up down here and say listen you've got a ticket but before you even get to get to the ticket guy you got to go through me and you got to do what I say and you got to give me five bucks 
I would be circumventing, subverting the ticket booth man, right? That makes sense? That's the right use of those words, the going around. I would be going around him one way, and I would be preventing people from getting to him without going through me the other way. Isn't that right? Have a seat. Thank you for being part of that illustration. Any attempt to circumvent the Son of God circumvents the Father. Do you hear me today? Pay attention. Let's use this illustration again. Come on back up here. If this, if this young man today can represent for us the Jesus Christ, that's a tall order. We're not saying you are Jesus, but you're going to stand here so that we can think about the illustration. And if Jesus is in Christ and the church is in Jesus, who or Jesus is in God the Father and the church is in Jesus and in God the Father and they're all there. And here comes me and I'm going to try and get between you and God the Father. How am I going to do it? Can I get up in your armpit? Is that going to get in between you and Christ? Huh? Can I get in your ear? Is that going to get in between you and Christ? Any attempt to circumvent the Son is an attempt to circumvent the Father. If you try and go around Jesus, you've just got, if Jesus is in God the Father, you've just gone around God the Father. Any attempt to circumvent or to get in the place of in between as a middleman, as an earthly mediator between Jesus Christ and the church, is a, is a subverting position that has no biblical basis. Go ahead and sit down. You cannot get around Christ. You cannot work your way between Christ and his church. And you cannot work your way between Christ and the Father. There's no wiggle room in there. You can't get between me and my appendix today. Do you hear that? Or my liver or my kidneys. You would have to open up my bowels and do surgery on me to try and get between me and one of my organs. Now, let me ask you this. Is Jesus Christ going to let some guy in some seminary get between or some church get into his bowels and get between him and his church? Answer me today. No. Any attempt to circumvent the Son circumvents the Father. Now listen to me. A saint cannot do anything for you. If you are in Christ, you are in the Father and therefore have equal access to God as any other saved human being, dead or alive. Do you hear me today? You say, well, wait a second. Old John the Beloved, he died and went to heaven. He's right there. The Bible says if you're saved and part of the church, you are in Christ. How can you get any closer to Christ than in Christ? Can John the Beloved say something to Christ that you can't say to Christ? If you're in Christ, you can communicate with Christ. Do you see this today? Boy, If you can't see it, I don't know how to help you. Jesus said, he that believeth in me shall never taste death. Shall never taste death. And yet people want to try and tell us that the saints who have died have some kind of access to the Father that we don't have. And yet Christ promised us eternal life. Do you hear me today? How many of you here remember that Jesus Christ promised eternal life to those that believe? And he said that you'll never taste death. If you will never die, then John never died. 
His body died, but he didn't die. And if you are in Christ, then you will never die. And if you will never die, then you have as much access to Christ right now as you will have in heaven. Do you hear me? The only difference will be that you won't be dragging around a body of death called the flesh that Paul cried out and, as, and said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The only difference that you'll have in heaven is that uh, once your body is resurrected, you'll have a new glorified body and you'll no longer have a sin nature that causes problems for you in the flesh. And so you'll be able to, to see and touch Christ with your body, which currently cannot. But spiritually, which is more real than your physical body, the spirit realm is more real than the physical realm because God is a spirit and he created the heaven and the earth and that which created is greater and more powerful and more lasting than that which is created. Who's bigger, you or your Lego truck? You are. That's right. And God is a spirit. The spirit is more real than the physical. And you spiritually, if you're saved, are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, that means you're as close as you can get. And you're not even going to get closer in heaven, spiritually speaking. Do you hear me today? This should be exciting. This should be exciting. A saved man in Christ, part of a church that is through submission to Jesus Christ has come to a place as a body of believers of in submission to Christ where Christ is ruling them directly. Can't get any closer to Jesus than they already are. That's an amazing thought. Instead of helping, listen to me today, Instead of helping you then, all of man's concocted systems and ideas of religion that are designed to give you access to the Father actually bar the door. Do you hear me today? If you are already in Christ and have access to the Father through Christ, and then a man comes along and says, you need to do my little thing. You need to go through my little system. You need to pray my little prayer. You need to confess to me. You need to take my sacraments. You need to go through my confirmation. And he tries to get you to go through his thing to get to the Father. Or he says, there's some dead people that that you need on your side. You need to get this dead person, Mary, to pray for you. You need to get this dead Benedictine to pray for you. You need to get this dead Gregory to pray for you. And he tries to put anything or anyone in between you and Christ. What he is actually doing is barring your access to Christ because that person does not have access to Christ in and of themselves. They only have access to Christ if they are in Christ. Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have equal access as they do. Do you hear me? So if you try to rely on some other person instead of the Father and the Son through the operation of His Holy Spirit, then you actually close the door to your prayers. Do you hear me today? Jesus said, I say not that you should pray. Um, 
unto me, but unto the Father in my name, for he heareth you. If the Father hears your prayer, the Bible says in 1 John, you know that you have the petition that you asked of him. So if you know the Father hears your prayer, then you talking to another person about what you need will only bar the door because that is a breach in communion. Let's think about it this way. Let's say a man is walking along and holding the hand of his son. And that son wants a lollipop. So he says, Daddy, can I have a lollipop? And that daddy says, Sure, son. But then they walk a little further and that boy gets hungry and he wants a hamburger. And so he walks over to some other guy. He lets go of his father's hand and walks over to some other guy and tells him, Hey, would you ask my dad if he'd give me a burger? And so then that man walks up and says, hey, your son wanted me to ask you if you could, if he could have a burger. What's that daddy going to say to that boy? Huh? Why didn't you ask me? Wait a second. That means there's a breach in fellowship. And the moment that person starts to go through a middleman, a saint, Mary, anybody else, a priest, a nun, a statue, an idol, it doesn't matter. The moment you try to go through anyone besides Jesus Christ and speak to anyone besides the Father for your petitions is the moment that you have barred the door to your prayers because you have broken fellowship with God Almighty. Let's move on. It bars the door. In the church of the Thessalonians here, they were referred to as in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And such a position in Christ made the apostle Paul just a Paul. Do you hear me today? It makes Mary just Mary. A sister in Christ. It makes the saints no different than you because you're a saint. If you're in the Father, you're a saint. You can't get any better. You can't get any higher. There's no higher existence, no higher plane than what is already readily available to not only the individual believer, but to the local assembly of believers in their local church gathering. It can't get any better. There is no organization. There is no denomination. There is no evangelist. There is no apostle. There is no anybody or anything that can give a believer more access to God than what is already given him through the body of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We got to keep moving. Running out of time here. We got to get some deep stuff here. We've got some neat stuff to look at. Some neat stuff about being in Christ. And how that applies to this grace and peace that's coming up. And how the grace relates to the body of Christ. And the peace relates to the blood of Christ. And we're going to see that in just a second here. So there is no respect of persons with God. Doubtless some people have operated with more power and more effect. There have been some Christians that have done more for God than others, haven't there? That's right. Some have had more power, more effect, more submission, more humility, more daily closeness. Paul even said there, Paul even said there, I labored more abundantly than they all. 
I labored more abundantly than they all. And he says, not I, but the grace of God working in me. But just Paul labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. But that didn't change his position. Do you get that today? It didn't change his position in Christ. And it didn't give him a higher position than them in Christ. You don't get tears here. That's how men work. Every religion besides following Jesus Christ in the whole world is nothing but a Ponzi scheme, an MLM scheme, every one of them. They want you to climb their little ladders, do their little tears, go through their little motions. You can, if you do this, you can be this kind of a person. If you volunteer this way, you can get this kind of honor. If you go to this kind of building and get this kind of paper with this kind of signature, you can hold this kind of an office and you can tell all these other people what they can do and can't do not so with Christ. Now let's move on to the grace and the peace. Grace be unto you and peace here in verse one of Thessalonians. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, before we study the grace and peace and close out, notice here that the grace and the peace is given from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The position in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ is the qualification for this blessing. In order to get grace and peace, you just need to be in God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also the position in Christ is the source of of this blessing. The source is God the Father and God the Son. And if you are in the source, who else can give you more? If you're a farmer and you own a field and in that field there is a spring and that spring is bubbling up and pouring thousands of gallons an hour out into a creek and that creek runs down a little ways and it goes back and forth and goes under the fence onto your neighbor's land and he comes up and tries to sell you water from that creek. Are you going to buy it? Why not? Say that nice and loud. Because you have this spring. Because you have the spring. The water they're offering you came out of your land. If you wanted it, you could have had it, but you let it run on down the stream. Listen to me today. Grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are in the source. And there is nobody and no organization and no place and nothing that can get between you and the source and whatever they are offering you for some kind of deeper walk with God. You've got within you already hallelujah if you're in christ you're in the source you're already there why would you go buy their water if it's even real water it came out of the spring that's within you and that you are within hallelujah so here's the grace and the peace. Now, grace is unmerited favor. That means something that I don't deserve, something that I can't earn, something that is given freely. But grace is more than unmerited favor. Grace is divine unction to obey God. That means it is supernatural power from on high to empower you to obey God. Grace is the desire and the power to do God's will placed in you by God himself. Now, this, hallelujah. 
Grace then is like the engine and the gasoline. The engine and the gasoline. Now you say, wait a second, how do I make use of the grace of God? Well, if the grace is the engine and the gasoline, you need to get in the car. And if you're in the car and the car has an engine and the car has gasoline in it and the car has a driver who has the keys and knows where he's going, then you don't do anything to get it. Do you hear me today? And if you are in Christ, do you hear me? If you're in Christ, you're in the car. And the engine is already there. And the gas is already there. And the driver, Jesus Christ, has the keys. And when he turns those keys, the engine comes on. And the car goes the direction it's supposed to go because he's driving it. And grace is like the engine. And it's like the gasoline. It's God giving you the desire and the power to do what he wants you to do. Just like my pancreas this morning. When I got up, my pancreas didn't pray and say, Oh God in heaven, I really like Joshua Burks and I want to do what he's doing today. It just did it. It just did what I did and went where I went and did everything it was supposed to do today. Thank the Lord. Listen to me. When you're in Christ and you're functioning in Christ, and your position in Christ is translated by faith into the practicality of being in Christ, and you lay hold on by faith the reality of being in Christ, and say, I am in Jesus. My sins are all gone. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and you take a step forward that day in Christ, walking in faith, walking in the Spirit, the grace of God takes your foot the direction it needs to go. And while you may be making the decisions, the grace of God will be changing your mind and renewing your mind through the Word of God so that you do what God desires you to do. And it's no longer some kind of mystical smoke and mirrors crystal ball type of thing where you got to go to some gypsy cart and ask some old lady with long fingernails what's going to happen tomorrow and where you should go and how you should do it you just get up and believe God and go and do what God wants you to do and obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit of God and trust him that as you obey him his grace will empower you and drive you and unctionize you to do what he said for you to do now that grace is in that comes from the source of the body of Christ Jesus said that if you are in me if any man be in me he says out of his belly will flow rivers of living water if you believe in me and that's that grace coming out of that body that grace then coming out is this free gift but it's also the motive force of the Christian now the peace that we have with God we studied peace peace is not the tranquility of body soul or soul the rest of the flesh and the senses but grace peace we're going to run through this fast go back and look at our peace podcast as we studied it in Colossians a judicial condition from Romans 5 1 therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ peace is secondly 
a spiritual reality. The peace of God that passeth understanding. The Bible talks about a spiritual reality that transcends the physical and the soulish reality. That when your mind is tangled up and confused and your will is broken and your emotions are cracked and you're crying and weeping and you don't know what to do and you don't know where to go and your body is hurting the peace of God that passeth understanding is there whenever you're born again by the power of God. Peace is thirdly a fruit of the Holy Spirit, an unearned and unmanufactured fruit. You can see it in Galatians 5 and in John 15, Jesus said, abide in me. If any man abide in me and my words abide in you, he said, ye shall bring forth much fruit. He said, this is the will of God that ye bring forth much fruit. I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should bring forth much fruit. Now, fourthly, peace is a governance. So peace is a judicial condition in the Bible, the peace of God. Peace is a spiritual reality. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit produced in you by operation of the Holy Spirit of God and not through any art or cunning of man, whether that be from meditation or purchasing things or anything else. And then fourthly, peace is a governance of body and soul. Now that one, we don't seem to understand much, but we got to get a hold of it. We got to keep moving. We just taught on this. And that's from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule in your heart and mind to which also you're called. I may have quoted that wrong. Look it up. A governance of body and soul. That the peace of God governs, can govern your body and your soul. And lead you the direction that you ought to go. So peace is way beyond getting a back massage and having all your bills paid and being on vacation somewhere in Hawaii. Peace is the governance of God Almighty over your will and your emotions and your mind that brings the spiritual reality of God into your life that passes understanding and gives you the knowledge that you are at peace with God judicially and then flows out into the lives of other people. So this comes from the source, as we said, the position of the sources from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as we wrap up today. And the position in Christ is the qualification for the blessing. You do not need church membership. You do not need anything to have the peace, the grace and peace of God, but rather to be in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, you will gather together with other believers in Christ. And there's no two ways about that. We're not studying that right now, but that's biblical. So the grace and the peace. Now, the grace is the partaking spiritually of the body of Christ. Peace is partaking spiritually of the blood of Christ. And how do you do that any other way than being in Christ? There is no other way. So Romans 8, 3 says that Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So Christ did in his body what no man could do in his body, he fulfilled the law. Matthew five seventeen says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And Jesus 27, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many, get this, pay close attention here. Uh, this isn't just some kind of caveat tacked on the end here. 
This ties into everything we've talked about. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So here these saints were locked in the graves because Christ had not yet risen. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20. This is absolutely significant. What the saints could not do in fulfilling the law. The saints were in their graves until after his resurrection. Do you hear me today? Do you hear me today? Maybe you're Orthodox. Maybe you're Roman Catholic. Maybe you're another variation that thinks that the saints can help you today. The Bible's clear. The saints were in the graves. Do you hear me today? Until after his resurrection, they were locked in the graves. Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, was in the grave. He was in the heart of the earth in what Christ called paradise, waiting for the day that Jesus Christ would do what Abraham could not do and fulfill the law. The saints cannot help you. Mary cannot help you. But Christ can help you. And he does it through the partaking of his body. And that's there in John chapter 6 where he said that, if, that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then he said the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He wasn't talking about physically ingesting his body. He was talking about this very fact that we are studying today. That in Christ you partake of his body. In Christ you partake of his blood. The Bible says that he is the head from which the whole body by joints and bands having nourishment. And I forget the rest of that verse, but that body is nourished by the head and the life is the, the life, the life of the flesh is the blood. And if you are in Christ, in his body, you are partaking of his body, his physical body around you, surrounds you, upholds you, sustains you and nourishes you through the blood, the sustenance of the blood of Jesus Christ. How does a Christian partake of the blood of Jesus Christ biblically? and spiritually this is it right here how does the christian partake of the body and blood of christ spiritually when you are in christ the pancreas the my pancreas this morning my liver my kidneys receive protection security are carried are driven are lifted are rested in accordance to the will of the body that i control a Christian in Christ is partaking of the body and of the blood of Christ. My pancreas, my liver, my spleen this morning got blood all night while I slept. The blood that is the life of the flesh went through the organs of my body and nourished them and sustained them. And listen to me today. If you are in Christ today by being born again by the power of God through faith in the operation of God which raised him from the dead then you have the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as your nourishment the body is the grace and the blood is the peace let's look at it today the saints were locked in the graves Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20 
It says here, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. So this is the new way that we have. And it gives us the blood that gives us the boldness. That's the peace that gives you the boldness to walk into the throne room of God the Father and his body, which is the way, the vehicle by which we get to God, not by ingesting Christ, but by putting on Christ through faith and Christ putting us in him. And this is thereby giving us power in Christ to go and do what Christ says and ultimately to go to heaven. How does anybody get to heaven? By being in Christ. Great message from a preacher upstate New York one day. He preached on God smuggled me in. This concept of being in Christ. Now the peace that we have through his blood we can find in Colossians. And in Ephesians and all throughout the Bible. So turn there real quickly as, as we close this out today. Colossians. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm excited about the Bible. I'm excited um, to even have the privilege of this Word of God. And I recommend for your study Ephesians chapter 2 in its entirety and in depth and in the context of the rest of the book of Ephesians on this topic. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And again, Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace comes through the redemption that's given through his blood. Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ye who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Study that out. It's talking about the how that the Jews had access to God through the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the prophets and through believing the word of God, which is the only way ultimately that they could have any saving hope was through faith that has never changed. It's always been through faith, always will be through faith. But that now there's a new way through Jesus Christ and in Christ, ye who were sometime of, um, far off are now made nigh. Listen to, me to, to you, listen to me today. Man's religion will try to build up new walls of partition between you and God. Man's religion will try to put gates and bars between you and God and make you jump through their hoops and pay their bills and go to their organizations and do reverence to their pontiffs and their high priests and all that kind of stuff in order to have peace to be nigh to God. But God says in his word, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Go to Colossians, just a few pages over. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 20. Now it says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Again, the blood of Christ. And then in verse 20, it says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross 
by him to reconcile all things unto himself. I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So this blood of Jesus Christ made peace. Do you see that today? The grace and peace that comes through Jesus Christ comes through the body of Christ and through the blood of Christ. And if you are saved, born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing, then you are in him and made a partaker of his flesh and of his blood far greater than eating a cracker or drinking out of a cup. This world always has external ways to try and get to Christ, but God wants to put you in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you no longer need anything else or anyone else to get you to Christ. Thank you, Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, loose the prisoners, Lord, that are bound by false doctrine and the lies of the devil. And help them, Lord, to come to Christ and to be in Christ and being in Christ, to have nothing between their soul and the Savior. Not of this world's elusive dreams of religion, of goodness, of anything else, but just them in Christ. Help us, Lord God. Help these that are here today and those that will listen online. I pray that this message will be used by you for your glory. I worship you and I praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.